Hello, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to this episode of the Deep South Dharma podcast. In the wake of Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about Kalyanamita, or noble friendship, which I think in many ways is the deepest and most satisfying love that we can know as human beings. More about that in a minute. Right now, I have one reminder, one announcement, and a save the date to give you. The reminder is that the time is now to register for our upcoming retreat on the weekend of March 20th, hosted by Flowering Lotus Meditation. Go to floweringlotusmeditation.org. You'll be able to register and see the details. I sincerely hope to see some of you there. The new announcement is that on Sunday evening, March 1st, I will be offering a webinar for individuals who are going through the experience of having a loved one in treatment for addiction or mental illness. It's called Time to Breathe When Your Loved One Is in Treatment, but it's not a meditation class. The idea is to help you know what to expect, both from your loved one in treatment and from the treatment team, as well as other questions that typically come up and how to make the most of that time for yourself. The Zoom link for this webinar is in this episode's description. The listeners of this podcast are getting this information in this link first, uh, but there is a limit on the number of spots available. So do get your registrations in um, and share with others who may need it right away. There's no risk to registering because even if you end up not being able to attend live, you'll be able to use your link to get the recorded version afterward. You are eligible to attend this webinar whether your loved one is in residential treatment or in intensive outpatient treatment. If you or someone you know is in that situation right now or is about to be in that situation, check the description of this episode for the link for the information. Um, You'll get information about the webinar, about me, uh, to get information on why I might be the right person to offer that uh, information, and the opportunity to register. Again, the live version is 7 p.m. Central Time on Sunday, March 1st, just a couple of weeks, and the recording will be available after that. And lastly, our Save the Date announcement. If you happen to be near Hendersonville, North Carolina, or you just want an excuse to go to that beautiful land in September of this year, mark your calendar for September 17th through the 20th, 2020. I'll be leading a retreat called Devotion to the Deathless. You can visit heartwoodrefuge.org if you want to check that out, or if you're just one of those special organized people who likes to register nice and early. Besides being a wonderful experience in and of itself, Having a residential retreat or two on your calendar each year is a great support for helping you establish your daily mindfulness training. Speaking of great support, I really want to thank the listeners who've been signing up to participate in this podcast through your financial support. May all of our good purposes be fulfilled. And in the spirit of mutual support, we'll now turn to this week's topic, Noble Friendship.
Kalyanamita is a Pali language term that is often translated as spiritual friendship, but that's actually not exact and not always helpful. The English phrase spiritual friendship comes from the Christian tradition, so it's not an exact fit for this Pali phrase. In looking at the translations, mito is pretty straightforwardly translated as friend, with mita being understood as friendship. But when I research the Pali word kalyana, the English words that are synonyms are words like good, auspicious, noble, or sincere, not spiritual. And this matters for some of us because the word that word spiritual may carry the feeling of <laughs> your mom wanting you to be friends with somebody who has great social skills with adults because she thinks that uh, that person would be some great influence while you know differently. Right? And there can also be the sense that a spiritual friendship requires that such a friend speaks the same religious language that you do in that sort of tense way that people do with others who are merely church friends, but not intimate friends. So in this talk, while I like all of those other synonyms, good, auspicious, sincere, I'm using the translation noble friendship because I find the word noble captures a quality that includes both the courage of sincerity and the humility of sharing in each other's struggles in a particular way. So in some Buddhist circles, the phrase Kalyanamita is used to denote peers who are traveling a path together. And in other circles, Kalyanamita refers to someone who is a teacher. Uh, in fact, one of the things I appreciate about the Theravada tradition is the understanding that a teacher is a friend, not a guru. Monks and nuns are considered teachers, and there is a great deal of respect, but no actual hierarchy in that, um, in this tradition anyway. And in fact, there is the constant reminder that the monastics are reliant on our support as lay people. But the fact that monks and nuns are not participants in mainstream culture in certain ways can make them particularly good friends to us for reasons that may become apparent as we look at the qualities of noble friends. I also want to mention that the Buddha taught that it's useful to our development to have people in our lives that are sort of three categories of people. Um, people who are teachers for us, uh, who are assisting us in our growth, people whom we are assisting, and then people who are in a similar place, going through similar struggles and successes, but with similar goals. So we talk about noble friendship. We're not talking about judging other people or even ourselves as worthy or unworthy of friendship. But we are talking about being clear on which category those relationships are in. So if we're trying to relate to someone as a peer when actually they may need our help, we may find that we fall back into old behaviors and habits trying to maintain a connection. And then on the other hand, if we're trying to teach somebody that, <laughs> that hasn't asked us a question, we're going to be worse than not helpful for them. And if we don't have someone we're learning from, we're going to miss out on the obvious benefits of that. 
whether you apply the term noble friendship to a, a monk or nun in the Buddhist tradition or with a fellow contemplative you study with or to someone you're close to who is on a path of their own, there are some qualities that you can seek to embody if you want to be a truly good friend to someone um, and qualities that you can use to discern a friendship that can help you grow toward freedom from suffering. Um, so it's important to recognize, too, in our tradition, when we talk about our growth and development, it is toward freedom from suffering. It's not toward some sort of mainstream ideal of what we think perfection is. It's what helps us get more and more free. And again, we're not discerning who is and is not a good person in the sense of having value. All sentient beings have value. And those of us inhabiting the human realm have value plus the ability to really potentiate and increase value to others the more we free ourselves from suffering. What we're talking about is not our basic worth, but it's about discerning who can function as a truly good and noble friend and discerning when we are or are not behaving as a truly good and noble friend. To begin with, the noble friend shares our essential goals. Even if they have different language or practices or even myths by which they seek to accomplish those goals, there can still be a sense of shared purpose. This is really very important for those of us in the American Deep South or other places in the world where Buddhism or contemplative strains of other religions are not really part of the mainstream. If we are dismissive of people just because they're not familiar with our system of education, or if we assume that they wouldn't be interested in us, we're going to miss out on friendships that could be really supportive and rewarding. I'm thinking of a woman who was on the staff of a treatment center where I was offering some mindfulness training uh, to the staff as well as the clients in a particular program. And she gained a great deal from that training in terms of how she felt able to, to her own mind training, I mean, in terms of how she felt able to respond to things at work and how she found that she was better able to be able to leave work at work when it was time to be at home. And she even found some resolution to a long-term problem she had had with being able to fall asleep at night. She confided in me later when she'd gotten to know me a bit that she had been very suspicious of mindfulness practice when she was first told that she was going to be attending this training. Um, or really, it was the whole idea of meditation that was scary for her. And this was based on attitudes that she had picked up toward meditation in her religious background, which was very particular to the local Pentecostal church she went to, but was not unusual in the part of the country where this treatment center was. She had had this idea that meditation meant sort of dissociating and allowing outside forces into the mind without any sort of discrimination. And apparently something I said allayed her fears, uh, which I sometimes do say in groups when I don't know the people very well. I will mention that if you're afraid of unknown forces being in control of the mind, that's all the more reason that you want to develop a lot of mindfulness. Um, and of course, in our tradition, 
we're doing that so the forces of our conditioning of consumerism, aggression, and confusion aren't in charge. But that language of wanting to be aware of what was coming in and out of the mind actually spoke to her and relieved her fears. Had I not listened to the fears of people just like her over all the years that I have grew up in the South, if I had written off their concerns with an attitude of dismissal or disrespect or um, just assuming that, um, that that's a closed door, then I wouldn't have been able to recognize that people actually have um, concerns that deserve to have their concerns addressed and that I can do that in a way that is very much in integrity um, for me and for them. So this leads me to another aspect of noble friendship in the Dharma that I really appreciate, which is that we are not burdened with any obligation whatsoever to try to put our religious views on other people. If people are curious about what we're doing, if they're seeing us being able to handle things with a sense of stability, um, and grace, and sometimes with ease, they may become curious about what we're doing. And it's perfectly okay for us to share what's helpful for us. And whenever possible, we want to put that in terms that they can understand. Um, To be useful, we want to speak their language where we can. The basics of generosity and ethical behavior are not unique to us. And other religions have their own versions of chants and prayers and meditation. You know, sometimes I visit the Magnolia Grove Monastery, which is not too far from where I live now. And one of the things I appreciate about them so much is that in the meditation hall, the altar, there is an altar, but the altar is free from particular religious images. Um, So there are no Buddha statues or anything like that. There's some beautiful plants and flowers there. And the monastics there explain that in their own private dorms, um, they have Buddha images in their meditation spaces, but they want the public meditation hall to be one where their friends of any religious tradition can come in and feel able to pray or meditate there without anything that would be an obstacle for them. So this is an aspect of of that community's noble friendship to the town around them. And they do enjoy a very positive relationship to their neighbors in Batesville, by the way. But sometimes even Buddhists will get into tussling with each other over views about differences in theology. You'll see that online People who consider themselves Buddhists will argue with each other about aspects of cosmology, and all of them are sure that the Buddha would agree with what they're saying. And almost inevitably, in one of those threads, someone will throw out a a statement that, well, Buddhists don't believe in a god, uh, not realizing that they can really only speak for themselves. What they apparently don't realize is that There are some Buddhists that believe very literally in realms full of gods and devas. In fact, one of the realms of gods is reported to be a realm in which each god is so far apart from other gods that each of them thinks they're the only god. 
Now, you can consider this metaphor if you like, or you can consider that there's really nothing odd about the idea of other realms if you remember that here we are inhabiting a realm. But the thing that our friends in the Southern religious mainstream often worry about on our behalf is the idea that gets put forth that Buddhists don't believe in God. Um, and for many people where, you know, realizing that their religious traditions, their faith is all about belief. Whereas in the Buddhist tradition, our faith is about the confidence that comes from seeing the results of our practice. Um, and when we haven't practiced very far yet, our faith comes from the confidence that we can borrow from seeing the results of another uh, of others' practice while we are building our own uh, foundation of experience. But it's really helpful, I find it useful anyway, to remember that the Buddha himself did not allow himself to be pulled into giving answers um, on these questions. People were always trying to get him to pick a side on this. And he would, he would just say, I'm not teaching on that subject. I'm talking about what causes suffering and what brings an end to suffering. Now, I don't think this was that he was trying to dodge a question because he didn't have an answer. Um, I think that he knew that uh, perhaps how he would have answered might not have made sense to the people asking the question. I also think that he knew that getting that particular question answered was not the solution to the suffering of those particular people. So people quizzing him about the existence of sort of an initial creator, um, that that really wasn't going to solve what they were asking. So if you've ever been part of a 12-step community, you know that in those circles, there's a similar emphasis on understanding that what matters is finding freedom from compulsion and not haggling over religious concepts. Um, and, it, and really, the Buddha's attitude in the suttas toward these kind of questions is, is very similar. It's sort of like questions of theology are an outside issue for him. He's interested in helping people recognize what is creating their suffering and to recognize what can put an end to it. But when we have friends that are concerned for us because of their views, you know, we just don't have to fix that for them. Um, we may feel our heart sort of squeeze in compassion for their suffering about that, but we can choose to appreciate their concern. We can even welcome their prayers on our behalf. Um, but we also may need to decide what our boundaries are about conversations on those matters. Now, of course, I also want to acknowledge sometimes we're going to run into people or we may run into people who voice that they're going to pray for us. And <laughs> what we feel is not so much love and concern from them, but it's sort of like a not so subtle sense of judgment or criticism or put down. But remember, in this topic this week, we're talking about noble friendship right now. So people who are engaging in that sort of condescending behavior are not the topic of this talk. Noble friends may share certain goals um, to be supportive, to bring goodness into the world, to relieve suffering wherever they can. 
and they can share a mutual concern for each other's welfare without imposing their own individual views on each other. Now, in general, we can use the Buddha's instructions on wise communication as part of our guideline for noble friendship. A noble friend says what is true, necessary, kindly, and at the right time. This doesn't mean that you can't be a noble friend if you don't do all that perfectly every time. It does mean this is the standard you are practicing with. True and kind may seem fairly intuitive. Um, Good friends don't lie to us or gossip about us. And even if we have asked them for tough feedback, they try to be kind when they deliver it. Timeliness involves recognition not only the time of day, such as, you know, are either of us too tired right now um, or rushed, but it also involves checking with the other person just to give them a heads up for what we want to talk about, whether it's that we need a listening ear or we need to bring up a sensitive subject. It's wise to ask if this is a good time and not just launch into it. And sometimes, you know, we may think, I know in the past I've been guilty of thinking that, oh, well, if I email or text, that's going to give that person a chance to just respond whenever they feel like it. But even there, I have found that people feel ambushed if I haven't first asked permission to discuss a particular subject, or if it's not a matter exactly of permission, at least some warning. When deciding what is necessary to say, this usually involves the issue of feedback that may be hard to hear. And for this, I see two essential considerations. One, is there an implicit or explicit agreement between us that feedback is welcome? Some friendships are built explicitly with feedback in mind. People talk about having accountability partners and such. But then sometimes we may make that assumption, or sometimes that can change. You know, I've had times in my life where where someone for a period of time specifically wanted my feedback about things, and then, you know, either they felt like they outgrew that, didn't want that anymore, or, you know, maybe for all I know, didn't find it all that useful. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the point is that there needs to be some agreement about that and an understanding of whether feedback is wanted. Sometimes, as family members, we can make the mistake of assuming that just because we're related, that that means feedback should be offered. But if we're to be good friends to our relatives and partners, we need to check out whether feedback is welcome and not just assume that. And then the second consideration as to whether something is necessary to communicate is our own emotional energy around it. Sometimes we may have to table something for quite a while if there's a strong charge to it. A strong charge suggests that our motive is not only to help the other person or to help the relationship. So you think about even in ending relationships, most people have had the situation of knowing that a relationship was truly over when you were able to communicate that calmly without a lot of drama or a motive to sort of twist the knife or anything. So if we can resist the urge to give our feedback with our own unexplored emotion fueling things, we can sometimes find a way to give feedback that is not harmful. I remember having a co-facilitator for a while, a work friend, 
We did family programs for parents of teenagers in treatment. And I began to be troubled because he seemed to have a habit of teasing with the dads in a way that I found really harsh. Um, and, And I felt like I had seen in some of these dads some negative results of that, some shutting down and that kind of thing. But I also had a very strong personal charge around that. And so I knew that taking that energy to my coworker would only likely increase that dynamic. I kind of suspected that if I went to him with the charge that I was carrying, that he would dismiss me and say I didn't understand because I was female or what have you. So, and I also realized I wasn't exactly clear about what was happening because it wasn't like the guy always acted this way. So, I made sort of a conscious decision to just observe what was happening for a while before trying to make any adjustments to it or to confront it. And this allowed me, over the next couple of weeks, I, it allowed me to see that, oh, this was occurring right about the same time every week. So we had this Monday through Thursday program on Wednesday afternoons uh, after we had a few days with the families to get them ready. Uh, we would bring the kids in for some work that was very emotional for the parents. The kids were in treatment. They were, by that point, pretty used to doing the emotional work. It was their parents that were newbies at it. Um, So anyway, I saw that it was on Wednesday after lunch when some of the more moving work was about to begin that my colleague would start with this harsh teasing. And he was all the time saying he was open to feedback, but I'd never really seen him receive much of it. He was a big guy, deep voice. In a previous life chapter, he'd been a clergyman, so he really didn't have too many people giving him feedback for a lot of his life. But he voiced willingness to have it. So when I saw the pattern, that gave me a place to begin. And the following Monday, I got with him before everyone else returned from lunch, and I just asked him, you know, do you mind if I ask, how are you feeling right now? Um, And he thought for a second, he said, well, okay, I guess. He said, I always feel a little antsy before these part, this part, because it's just so intense. Um, And I, I have to tell you, hearing him say that really softened my internal reaction, because I really got that, that it was his own feeling about intensity that was bringing up this teasing. Um, And then, of course, he wanted to know, well, why do you ask? Why would you ask how I was feeling? So then I was able to say with truly no aggression and no fear of speaking my mind that I had been noticing that on Wednesday afternoons that the joking, especially with the dads, seemed kind of harsh. And I was concerned that they may be feeling attacked, um, whereas maybe at other times in the week they might, you know, be able to tease him right back and feel equal to it. And he totally got it, seemed genuinely grateful that I brought it to his attention. And in fact, I never saw that happen again in that way. Um, And I don't think that this man was trying to comply with something because I wanted it. It was that he could really see it once he was more aware of his nervousness during that time. Now, obviously, I don't always wait until the right time to deliver messages without anger or fear. (laughs) And even on those times that I do, people don't always respond so graciously. But this was an incident where I got to put my practice to the test and see what that looks like when one person gives feedback as a noble friend and the other person receives feedback as a noble friend. So in addition to wise communication, 
we can use the framework of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, to help us see the qualities of a noble friendship. A noble friendship is a place where we experience all four of these qualities of the heart. Goodwill, including good wishes for the health and safety of the other person, for our success, compassion when we suffer, empathetic joy when we rejoice, and equanimity. I want to talk about equanimity as it shows up in noble friendship. This is not a detached, uncaring thing. The compassion is still there. The interest is still there. But when you are suffering and you have a friend that can maintain their equanimity, it is a great gift. First of all, their equanimity can give you the sense that it will be possible for you to find your own equanimity again. Secondly, their equanimity means they don't need you to hurry and feel better. They can let you go through whatever you need to go through. So there's simultaneously this sense that you can borrow their confidence in your ability to handle what you've got to handle, but also you feel like their well-being is not being put on hold until you do. So there's sort of a guilt-free feeling in that. To be that kind of friend involves staying close to your own body. Sometimes we say, my heart goes out to you. And that's fine as long as what we mean by that is my heart is centered and expands to include the other. But too often what we mean is that it feels like our heart leaves our body and jumps into the middle of the other person's problem. And we frankly cannot help anybody from that perspective. So it's, hel- it's helpful to actually engage in meditation practice with this aspect of feeling the pangs of empathy feeling them as they are in our body, letting them come and go as needed, while staying centered in our own body without personalizing the other person's situation, and allowing the heart to expand and become more spacious rather than losing it to the situation. In fact, let's just sit with that image for a minute.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.